Hey, good morning. We started a new series last week called Scandal of the Cross. It's going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. We talked a lot about the cross and the crucifixion last week. I reminded you as a church why we have these crosses that are hanging up here to my right and my left. They've been there, there since 2008 where many of you donated frames from your house thinking you were going to get them back. And here we are in 2022 and you, don't, you still don't have them back. And this is a representation of all of our stories come together at the cross. This is where all of our lives, the frames that hold the stories of our lives, come together at the cross. I encourage you last week, wear crosses. Wear them. If you wear them, wear them. There are people who have tattooed crosses on their bodies. We have them here in our church. You have them in your homes. Some of you wear them as jewelry. Wear them. Hang them up around your house. And always remember why we have a cross. Jesus carried his Jesus has carried ours, and Jesus has asked us to carry our own cross, too. Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the past century, says this, The decisive thing is not that we are spared punishment, though this is true, of course. The decisive thing is that in Jesus Christ, God himself has put an end to sin and to our imprisonment under the reign of sin. Right? Think about how significant that is for your life. Of all that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, Jesus has dealt with personal sin, and Jesus has done something to sin forever. There is a victory that was won on that day around 2,000 years ago when Jesus went up on the cross for six hours. And it's hard for people to like wrap their mind around it. Like This is a stumbling block for people today to come to faith of how there can be so much blood and how there had to be a sacrifice. And here's how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1, because it was a stumbling block then too. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 says, We preach Christ crucified. That is our message. We preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a scandal. To the Gentiles, foolishness. So Paul's like, to the Gentiles, it doesn't make sense at all. Like people who cherish knowledge, like there's, for them, there's no way to use all the knowledge and all the wisdom they have. There's no philosophy that could help summarize the cross. And to the Jews, it's just, it's a scandal. So a scandal, this word scandalone, which is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, is that which causes offense or revulsion and results in opposition, disapproval, or hostility. So for Jews, it was a scandal. It's not the death of Jesus that was a scandal. It's the way he died that was a scandal. So what I did last week is I walked you through seven motifs or seven images of a cross. Seven images, seven motifs of the crucifixion. And I walked you through all seven of these, and I want to go through them just really quick as a, as a recap. And over the next few weeks, we're going to slow down and spend a, little time, spend a little more time with each one of these. Last week, I talked a little bit about Christus Victor, which on the cross, Jesus won a victory. Jesus went out oh, after the powers of darkness. He went after evil, and there was a victory that was won on the cross. On Easter Sunday, we're going to spend more time talking about Christus Victor. I also talked about scapegoat. The idea that sins were transferred and sins were placed on Jesus and he has carried them far away. And on, past, or on Good Friday, we're going to talk a little bit more about how Jesus has become our scapegoat. Then I walked you through ransom. And the whole idea of ransom is that people are being held, in, people are being held hostage. A price has been set. A price has been paid for our release. Jesus paid the price with his own life. We're going to talk some about ransom today. I also talked about the Passover lamb, that Jesus has become the ultimate Passover lamb for us, the ultimate sacrifice. The way the New Testament puts it is Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all. One time he went up on a cross, dealt with sin forever. 
In a couple of weeks on April 3rd, my dad's going to talk about the Passover lamb. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Passover lamb on Good Friday. I also walked you through what many know as PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, which for most of you is the primary way you have heard preachers and teachers and youth ministers talk about the cross. That sin needed to be punished. We should be the ones who were punished. But Jesus stepped in our place. He was the substitute to take the punishment that should have been placed on us. I'm going to talk more about PSA, about substitutionary atonement, today as I talk about ransom. And the last two I talked about last week, we're going to spend a little time touching on these, but one was moral exemplar. Like Jesus becomes the ultimate moral example, especially for people today whose hearts are bent toward justice and compassion, benevolent hearts. Like they find something in moral example that throughout Jesus' entire life, he modeled a life of sacrifice all the way up to the cross. And not only that, now he asks us to, to, he set the example, and now we are called to live the same kind of life as Jesus did. And last but not least, solidarity. That Jesus became like us in every way. Hebrews talks about this. He became like us in every way. Walked the same ground we walk on. Bled the same blood we bleed. Died a death, died our death. Solidarity became like us in every way in order to restore and save the entire world. Now, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote a book on the crucifixion, fantastic book, she kind of walks through, like, here is what, here's how many of us think of atonement. So when it comes to substitutionary atonement, here's how many of us think about this. Is that as, as a result of sin in the garden, the entire human race has been mired in sin and has incurred the wrath of God. God cannot overlook sin as though it didn't happen, so it must be punished. Jesus entered the place of sinners and took the punishment on himself. And by deflecting the wrath of God onto himself, Jesus took it away from humanity. Now, those of you who grew up in churches, who grew up going to church camps and youth rallies, I'm sure, like I remember there was a church camp I was a part of where one of the teachers stood up in front of us one night during the worship service and the entire talk was him showing images of Jesus on a cross or Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head as he was bleeding, or Jesus having nails driven into his hands or his feet, or Jesus having the whip going on his back, or Jesus hanging on the cross, and it was like supposed to, like a whole way he was talking about it was to cut us to the core, like you did this to Jesus. Your sin is what placed him on the cross. And because Jesus did that, you should do certain things in your life. Or because Jesus did that, there are certain things you shouldn't do with your life. Like because Jesus did that, you should wait until marriage. Or because Jesus did that, you shouldn't like offend other people or hurt other people or talk bad about your brothers or sisters. Or if your March Madness bracket blows up, don't take your anger out on other people, right? Like because Jesus did this, there's a certain way you are supposed to live. And there have been times where preachers and teachers have somewhat abused atonement by manipulating it to force guilt upon people they are not meant to carry. Now here's the thing about the seven motifs that I walked you through earlier. All of them carry some form of atonement with them. There is no salvation without taking personal sin seriously and understanding what Jesus has done for personal sin. I want to remind you three things I'm trying to accomplish over the next few weeks. One is I just want to grow your appreciation for the crucifixion. I want to grow your appreciation and your gratitude for all Jesus accomplished on the cross. Number two, I want to broaden the significance of the crucifixion for you. Because all the ways you have thought about the cross in your life doesn't come close to everything that was accomplished on the cross. It was personal. 
It was cosmic. What Jesus did on the cross, the crucifixion, has set the world right forever. And thirdly, last but not least, is that faith is not about you trying to get to God. It's you believing in all the ways God has, got, God has come to us. That when it comes to the crucifixion, this wasn't God's blueprint. Now you try to figure out how you respond to the cross or you can get to God. The cross is an example of all the ways God has chosen to get to us. And let me pause right there and just welcome people into this space. I want to welcome all those who are here in person. I welcome the group from Colorado who's here on a mission trip. Can we welcome our Colorado friends to Memphis this week? They are here to serve the city. They're here to serve the Boys and Girls Club that meet here on our campus. So we hope we thank you, we thank you for the blessing you're going to be to our immediate community and, and to Memphis. And we hope that Sycamore View and the Boys and Girls Club and the Memphis will be a blessing to you over the next few days. I want to welcome all those who are joining us virtually. Thank you so much for participating in this worship service today. And next Sunday, we are going to one service. <clears throat> I know there are a few people happy about this. Now, you, you should have heard it, though, with the 830 crowd, because I kind of I did this thing, like, we're going to one service, and we've decided Bible class is going to be at 9, and worship will be at 1015, which for that 830 crowd, they're like, hey, we're all for one service, but can it be at 7 a.m.? Like, can it be earlier than 1015? And maybe you're here, and you're like, hey, I, I'm, I'm all for one service, but at 1015 may be early for some of you. I, I don't know, but at 1015, we're going to be here, and you're going to be out of here by 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to have a great time. We are, we're, we're thrilled to be back to one service. And just to give you a little context, just in the month of February, we had just under 400 people uh, who were, on average, just under 400 people who were here in this church in person on a Sunday morning. We have another 250 screens, not people, but screens who are with us every Sunday. Most of those YouTube and BoxCast. So that means we have around 650, or preacher count, around 2,000 people, because we don't know how many people are on a screen. Right? It could be one person or five, we don't know. Um, and we don't think all those people are going to be here next week. So we think we're in a place as a church where we can do this in a way that uh, is comfortable and helpful, and, and we're excited about being in the same place. We think this will be a great move for unity and just unifying. So next week, 9 o'clock, 10, 15, uh, look forward to seeing you there. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, we aren't told exactly when this happened, but it's the story, uh, it, it's the chapter right before the triumphal entry. So most likely, this is pretty close to the last week of the life of Christ before Jesus is crucified. And in verse 35, what you read is that James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, we got a question for you. Like, we have a request and we need you to grant it. Like, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's pretty bold in the presence of Jesus, right? Now, here's what's funny. <laughs> All right. Mark tells this story in the Gospel of Mark, right? You, you can see it on the screen, or maybe you have your own Bible out. Matthew also tells this story. Now, Matthew, most likely, most people think Matthew used some source, like Mark, to write his Gospel. So Matthew sees the way Mark tells the story, and Matthew tells the story a little differently. The way Matthew tells the story is it wasn't James and John who came, to make, who came and made this request. It was their mother who came to make this request for them. So it's like Mark tells the story to like kind of protect James and John. Matthew's like, man, y'all need to know their mommy went and fought this battle for them, all right? 
So their mom goes to him. Mark chapter 10, though, it's James and John. They come and they have a request and they want Jesus to grant it. So Jesus says, what do you want me to, to do for you? Two different times in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that. What do you want me to do for you? And their response is, like, we want to know. Like, we want you to do this. In the fullness of your kingdom, we want to sit on either side of your throne. One on the right, one on the left. And I bet James and John, like, had it out on who got the right seat, right? That was the better seat. But we just want one of the seats next to you. And the way Jesus responds is like, you really don't know what you're asking for. You think you know what it means to have a throne and the kingdom of God established here on earth. You think you know what it means, but you don't know what it means and you don't know what it's going to take to accomplish that. So the way Jesus responds is, you think you could drink the cup that I drink and you think you are ready to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but you're not. And then the other ten find out that James and John have made this request of Jesus and they are angry, indignant. So Jesus says this. It's one of the greatest lessons on leadership you'll find in the entire Bible. In verse 42 it says Jesus called them together, right? All 12 of the apostles. He called them together and he said, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And listen to this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life. But did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's Jesus who's given a lesson on leadership. And Jesus, this is the first mention of the word ransom you see in the New Testament, and it's not a word that shows up a lot. But when it does, it's referring to Jesus. Jesus has become the ransom. And for Jesus to use this term meant that Jesus understood the term. Within a week from when he spoke this to the, the disciples, most likely he is becoming the ransom for them. He is the price that is being paid. And Jesus knows his Old Testament. The first time you have the word ransom and the first time you have the word atonement show up in the Bible is in the book of Exodus after the people of God had been set free. Not before. So the way God instructs Moses to teach ransom and atonement and then for Moses to instruct the people is to teach them that atonement and ransom isn't just to get you free, it's to keep you free. Isn't this what some of you struggle with in your life? Like Jesus has set you free eternally, he has set you free, yet the work of Satan in your life, the work of darkness, is to try to find ways to still hold you in bondage. Jesus wants to get you free, Jesus wants to keep you free. And Jesus knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew what it meant to be a redeemer. He knew what it meant to be a, be a kinsman redeemer. And, and God is the one in the Old Testament who says, hey, I am the redeemer of my people. I am the redeemer. I am your redeemer. And any redeemer pays a price for, re for the redemption of people. So for Jesus to use a word ransom, he understood everything that it meant. Now, when you think ransom today, what do you think of? Like you probably think of stories happening here in our country or throughout the world where people have been kidnapped or they're being held, in, they're, they're being held hostage. And anytime there's a ransom, there's, there's negotiation. There is some price that needs to be paid so that people can be set free. 
there was a movie that came out back in the 1990s called Ransom. Mel Gibson played a dad. He was a multimillionaire. Millionaire. His son was kidnapped. And a price was set for his son to be free. Now, in the movie, Gibson's character decided to play hardball. Like, you want to play ball with me? Let's go. So what he decided to do is instead of paying the money, he was going to offer the money to the public for anybody who could find the kidnappers. They were going to make millions of dollars. So the kidnappers never expected this to happen. Now, long story short, the kid was found, the family was fine, a few people died. It's a rated G movie. Go home, watch it. I'm just joking. Don't go home and watch it with your family, all right? But there was, the whole movie is about ransom. A, a price was set, a price needed to be paid in order for people to be set free. Now for many of us, maybe you didn't know, but the person who has written more about ransom than almost anyone else is C.S. Lewis. Now most people would argue that for C.S. Lewis, the primary way he thought about the cross, he thought about the crucifixion, was through ransom. So if you've read the uh, Narnia books or you've watched the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the primary way he portrays Jesus is as the ransom. So in the movie, it builds up to this point where there's a person of God, a child of God, who is being held captive. He's a hostage. And then what you have is Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus, who goes into a tent with the witch, who represents the powers of darkness. And you don't hear the conversation, but you are left to think that they are in there settling on a price so that these children of God, this child of God, can be set free. And the price that is settled on is the price of the lion. It's the price of Jesus. So Jesus understands what it means for people to be held in bondage. And because Jesus was willing to become the ransom, Jesus is the one who raised his hand and said, I will pay the price, knowing that the price was going to be his own life. He has become the ransom. Now any ransom, there's atonement that goes with it. There is a sacrifice. There is someone or something that has to be paid for someone to be set free. And this happens in almost every movie or every story you watch, where there is some form of sacrifice that is made. I don't know if you remember the Hunger Games, if you read the books or you watched the movie, but early on in the Hunger Games, it's about all these districts and two people per district are chosen to basically go and like it becomes this show now where like it's a fight to death. It's like last one standing. And this young girl was chosen from a district and it's Katniss who becomes like the, the main character in, in all the, the books and all the stories who she takes the place of her sister. She becomes the substitute. Now, I could tell other stories about movies and other stories about books, and we could even think about stories happening in the world today, yet any story we could think of of a person who has become a ransom or a person who has become the substitute doesn't even come close to everything Jesus has offered us by becoming the ransom and by becoming the substitute, our substitute on the cross. Now, if ransom is the only way you think about the crucifixion, you run into some problems for yourself and especially with evangelism. Because for ransom to happen, there's negotiation on a price. Right? And, and there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about God and Satan sitting down because human beings are being held hostage by sin and settling on a price. And if you're not careful, ransom can make it sound like Satan is the one who named the price, like Satan is the one calling the shots, and God agrees to Satan's plan. But this isn't the way the Bible tells a story of sacrifice and atonement. That God is the one orchestrating the plan, 
because of the sin of the world to respond to that in a way that offers salvation to the world. God is the one who is orchestrating the plan, not the enemy. And throughout the Bible, the way atonement is placed in front of people is atonement is to deal with the systems or the powers of the world who are holding people bondage in bondage and that atonement, that ransom, is about deliverance. And what we can never forget in the church is that, that the deliverance came at a great cost the price of Jesus' own life. Now, if atonement, substitutionary atonement, if this is the only way you think about the the cross, you run into some problems too, especially when it comes to evangelism. Is that if we're not careful, atonement can make God out to look like, it can portray God as this angry God who is full of wrath, who is quick to destroy people. After all, the whole idea of atonement can be that you have sinned, you deserve death, there needs to be punishment, Jesus has stepped in to take that so that you don't have to. But the way the Bible portrays God when it comes to atonement is the love of God has driven God and there is the wrath of God. I believe in the wrath of God and as the people of God, you should believe in the wrath of God too and you shouldn't be afraid of it. If you are in the family of God, the wrath of God is something you should not fear because the the wrath of God comes to set the world right. And who doesn't want that? The wrath of God is after evil or after systems, anything in the world that sets itself up against people. The wrath of God comes to set the world right. And it's the love of God that has put together a plan to offer salvation to the entire world. The early church fathers and mothers, the early church leaders... They talked a lot about ransom. And I think it's an image that really worked for them, especially in the first few centuries of Christianity. Because the first few centuries of Christianity, everyone was under the Roman Empire. Where they knew all about oppression and they knew about people who were being held down or held in bondage. So the idea of ransom and the idea of being redeemed is something they could really connect to. And throughout the 2,000 years of Christianity, historians continue to build off these ideas of ransom and atonement. John Calvin, when he wrote about the crucifixion and he preached on the crucifixion a lot around 500 years ago, he wanted people to understand how fatally serious the breach is between humanity and God. And the reason he wrote a lot about atonement and about sin, it was to convict people, but he wanted people to know like the, the, the message of the cross for you is not just to know that God loves you in your sin. It's that because of the cross, you should want to sin less in your life. Martin Luther came along. And one thing he said was this, that the way that Christ has become the victor was through his death on our behalf and in our place. This is what God has done. Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice, the ransom, the atonement, on our behalf, in our place. And O'Connor put it like this, Flannery O'Connor, the human predicament is so dire that it cannot be remedied in an ordinary way. If we fail to see this, then we have not yet considered the great weight of sin. Redemption, buying back, therefore it is not cheap. In the death of Jesus, we see God himself suffering the consequences of sin. This is the price. When Christian teaching falls short of this proclamation, the work of Christ on the cross is diminished to the vanishing point, becoming nothing more than exemplary death to admire, to venerate, perhaps even to emulate. 
but certainly not an event to shake the foundations of the world order. Jesus has become our ransom in our place. I remember uh, this story from U2, the famous band. They've been around 40 plus years. And they tell the story in the late 80s, they were torn, and there were a lot of race riots that were happening at the time. And they had written a song in which the third verse talked about Dr. King's assassination. And there were places that they would go to perform or to, to, for a concert in which they were getting threats that we don't want you to play that song. And they traveled to Phoenix for a concert in the late 80s. And when they were there, they received a death threat that if you sing the third verse of that song in the concert, you will die. They decided to sing the song anyway. And in the third verse of the song, the way Bono tells the story is that he closed his eyes and he sang the whole third verse about the assassination of Dr. King and about, uh, about peace. And when he opened his eyes, one of his friends who's been in the band since used to was formed, Adam, had been standing in front of him during the entire verse. Now, Adam would go on to say, it's just, he felt like it's just what you do as a friend. Like, you know, that's what you just do as a friend. And I could find other stories that are similar to that. But the best stories we could find of humans standing in front of other humans to protect them doesn't come close to what Jesus has done, has done for us by taking our place. So in Genesis chapter 9, you have a story of a rainbow that God gave to humanity to remind us of a covenant, to remind us of a promise. And in the Hebrew, the word rainbow, is, it's, it's really bow. It's not so much rainbow, it's just bow, like bow and arrow. It's a bow in the sky. This is what God provided to remind us of covenant and promise. And Tim Keller is the first one who introduced me to this, and then... I've seen other people write about it, and it's been around for quite some time, that part of the teaching is that when God provided a bow, a rainbow in the sky, to remind you of covenant and to remind you of promise, it is not a bow that is facing the ground to where arrows are coming at us. It is a bow that is pointing to heaven where arrows are going into heaven. As God's way to let us know that God has taken upon himself everything that is needed to redeem the world everything that is needed to redeem humanity God has done in and through Jesus so don't ever forget the cost that was paid that when we take the bread and when we take the cup and when we wear our crosses we are reminded that a price was set and the price was paid for the redemption of the world and to that as a church we say thanks be to God right This morning, we're going to expand how we take communion, how we take the bread and the cup. Earlier this year, we expanded our, our prayer offering. I'm so thankful for Kim Chapman earlier for leading us in a focused prayer time. And here's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. Hopefully, you got a piece of paper when you came in. If you're online, just hang with us here for just a moment. We want you to stay in this moment with the bread and the cup uh, with us. But I know we've been conditioned now since COVID that when you come into the church, there's a table out in the foyer and you get your cup, you get your bread in the cup, and then you come into the room. And today, we're going to do this just a little different. We want to expand how we move to the table together and what this means for us. And I love the idea of there being a worship service that builds where there is the climax of, of us joining around the table together as a church family, which then prepares us to go into the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. So there are six tables in this room, two up front, 
their tables in between the front and back sections, kind of to my right and left, and then back here by the back wall, there's a section by the or a table by both exit doors on both sides. And in that tray, all you may see is the cup, but the bread is in there, not mixed in with the juice. All right, we we didn't do that. It is a stacked cup. So when you take a cup from a tray, there's going to be the juice, and then you take the cup from the bottom, and there will be the bread for you. And we love what this means theologically for us, that God moves to us and has chosen to move to us in thousands of different ways. And what we want to do is have this offering where now we are moving together to God with each other for the sake of the world. So there may be three different things you do when you go to a table here in just a moment. You may choose to just take one of those cups to take the bottom cup, uh, to, it's stacked, to take those two, and you may choose right there to take the, take the bread, take the cup, and then throw the trash in the trash cans. You may choose, together with friends or family, just to huddle up anywhere you could find in this worship center where you can hold the bread and the cup and you can pray together. For there is no meal that is more important for friendship, for marriage, for family, than the meal that we are about to take right now. This is the meal that holds us together through it all. And you may choose just to take the bread and the cup and to go right back where you were sitting right now and to have a moment with God as you reflect with God and also with other people. Uh, just a few things as we move. We're going to have a few minutes. There's going to be some soft music that is being played over us. So uh, don't feel like you have to rush to one of these tables. All right, we're going to have a few minutes together. A few minutes is a long time in a sitting like, setting like this. So take your time, pace yourself. Don't feel like we have to rush. Up here to my right, we're going to have one of our shepherds who will be here to receive you for prayer like we did pre-COVID. So we'll have a shepherd up here to the right by this exit door. If there's anyone who has a prayer request you want to bring to our elders, he will be here to receive you. If I could ask an elder or a minister to make their way to one of those six tables and just take the lids off of the communion, it would make it much easier for people when they come to a table. And if you want to stay there just to receive people when they come to get the bread and the cup, it would be awesome. We have our gluten-free option. If you're looking at me right now at that exit door right over there, I know we have had that for over a year uh, for some of you. And for virtual people, just hang with us. We're going to spend just a few minutes as we expand what communion will look like for us. We're just going to have a time in this room, it may be about five minutes or so, where we're getting the bread and the cup, reflecting with God and also with each other. So just hang with us in this time. Uh, we consider you as part of this worship experience. So uh, join us in this time of prayer and reflection. Let's uh, bow our heads as we pray together. For God, as we move to tables here in a moment, we want this just to symbolize and to be a witness, a testimony of how we as a church are moving together deeper into your heart and deeper into the world that you long to redeem. And God, as we do this as a church, may we never forget the sacrifice that was paid to even make this meal and to make salvation even possible. So for Jesus, for everything you have done for us, for the victory that was won on the cross, for taking our place, for paying the price, for everything you have done, we say thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please make your way to one of our tables.